0: a trajectory toward equity is necessary. I think it's really, really important to think about the way in which that technology was embedded in a social and economic context. I think that technologies in general can be either substitutes or complements to what we do. The enabling capacity is extraordinary. We need to realize that there's a social responsibility to value us at the same time.
1: Welcome back to the Plenty Ideas That Matter podcast.
2: A show that delves into how the rapidly changing fields of new technologies and big data are impacting the academic and professional discipline of urban planning.
1: I'm Takeo Kouapara.
2: And I'm Dave Leshansky.
1: If you are just joining us, we suggest you listen to our first three episodes featuring MIT Department of Urban Study professors Lawrence Susskind, Janelle Knox-Hayes, and David Sue. Those conversations set the framework for the nascent field of urban science and how some of the top minds in urban planning are incorporating the changes evolving the field through the introduction of ever-intensifying technological advancement.
2: In the next three episodes, we're going to feature professors Amy Glassmeier, Jason Jackson, and Albert Saiz to discuss An inflection point in which our machines have reached their full force to transform the world comprehensively. Automation has long been considered a threat to low skilled laborers, but recently even things called the knowledge economy jobs are within the purviews of machines. Wait, what? So the knowledge economy jobs are jobs that are highly skilled, highly educated, and creative. Think about your surgeon or your high school teacher. Right, so that's my first question. Will this round of technology transformation with artificial intelligence be categorically different? In other way, are we reaching the singularity point in one or two generations.
1: So that leaves so many questions. Is planning with robots a turning point in the co-evolution of technological revolutions? What about human labor adaptation? Will the artificial intelligence revolution be unique? When social and spatial impacts occur, who will be the most vulnerable and how can we build the capacity now to mitigate the negative impacts and foster a more just and equitable outcome for those individuals.
2: I'm on the edge of my seat. Let's jump into our first interview with Amy Glassmeyer.
0: So when I think about the first round of urban analytics and the early days of spatial analysis and urban representation through computerization, it was actually, I personally believe, driven a lot by the skill base that was cut loose at the end of the Vietnam War.
1: Just to clarify, urban analytics is the study of people creating, applying, and using information and communication technology and data in the context of cities and urban environments. It started to emerge in the academic literature in the 1980s and is in many ways similar to the concept of urban science.
0: So you had all of these physicists and other scientists and mathematicians, and there were thousands of them, LBL and and all of the, the national labs. And they had developed very sophisticated competency in representing reality on a physical basis. So I look at it from the standpoint of, where did we get those big models? They came about partly because we believed once we started to understand the numerical power of computers that we could actually model human behavior. In terms of the actual models themselves, they were caricatures of human behavior.
2: So is Amy saying that we don't yet have the skills to model humans? That we can't yet accurately understand how to manipulate space and context to allow those models to thrive?
1: Yes, exactly. Amy is highlighting how we have to be cognizant that these models are abstractions of people, not digital mirror reflections. And this isn't the first time we have heard our guests talk about the data that makes up our everyday life being used to create models to enable better abstraction and generalization.
0: You know, humans think of ourselves as having
1: more agency, but in a practical matter, anyone who actually works with data is incredibly bored by our repetitiveness. One of my colleagues just says he tracked his own data and his own movements, and he realized that looking at his own data was just the process of rinse, lab, and repeat every single day. He went from <laughs> home to work to home to work, and deviated like 1% of the time.
2: Ah, so we might know the route you take to work what coffee shops you like to visit, and maybe what you order on a day-to-day basis. But all that information doesn't accurately tell us why you take that route or what's important about that coffee shop.
0: There are patterns to one's everyday experience, but there are so many episodic interruptions that turn us left when we were gonna go right or cause us to engage with others or even think differently. And I think there's going to be a long time before we're capable of really modeling human behavior.
1: So is there a use in the broader policy world or in the planning field for these kind of, as long as we understand them as loose characterizations or generalizations, is there a use for them?
0: Oh, absolutely. I can give you a great example. So there has always been this uh, complaint in Congress that uh, we, um, that, that, women, poor women with children, don't take jobs or they don't stay consistently employed. And there was a study done by a couple of academics at Penn State that actually did time diaries and individual household visits with uh, single female-headed households. And they tracked their movement across time and space over a period of time and it was so obvious that there was no way that a woman could manage children and a job and a house without there being a constant prospect that there would be a rupture in the pattern that would have the whole thing fall apart. So when they went to Congress to present this the Congress completely understood it. And they said, well, of course, if she has a sick kid and she works over there and the doctor's over here and the child care's over here, she's never going to get to work on time.
1: So almost this is saying that these models can be used especially for the people that are most at risk in our society to represent the data that we have otherwise a very difficult way of kind of humanizing their experience.
0: And what I would also say is public policy is about the complex problem of, distributing scarce resources. If you look at the automobile industry of the 1960s and 70s, even though we had moving assembly lines, people were still doing terribly effort-filled, painful, body-breaking types of work. And the industry, which it was at that time at 1.25% in all of its, its linkages of the national economy, You had a situation where it was a bunch of fragmented little shops and some big facilities. So in those fragmented shops you had people that were literally using drill presses and grinders that had been in existence for decades. The ability to automate things which uh, were repetitive, heavy, dangerous, dull and dirty, I think has been a tremendous step forward. At the time that we began to do that, we knew very well what the consequences were going to be from a labor force perspective. There's two responses to that type of change. The first response is that you realize the value of human labor and you acknowledge that by increasing its productivity, you expand your elasticity of opportunity. In the U.S., we chose to remove the human element or to drastically diminish it. And we also chose to assume that the individual absorbed the responsibility of the transition. And today, that's where we find ourselves.
2: So humans are valued less because robots do work better? Are people being paranoid when they envision a future where we're all replaced by robots?
0: The first thing that we have to think about from the standpoint of urban planning is what in urban planning is going to be automated. A lot of the jobs that we do are going to disappear. And so for us as a profession, what does that mean?
2: That sounds a lot like other technological revolutions, where a new innovation, say the steam engine, altered the demand for certain skills in the labor market. But is there a way we could have more flexibility built into our workforce? using the data from representations of humans in that workforce to limit the negative impacts of this coming technological revolution.
0: All facets of work are being examined for the potential to increase productivity and reduce costs by implementing some sort of technology, whether it's automation, artificial intelligence, or machine learning. And there's a human still in that picture if for no other reason than to push the button, start the machine. And I think we're going to be in that same environment. But that doesn't mean that that person who pushes the button has to be employed by the person who owns the machine. It is increasingly the case that that even at very high levels, we're seeing significant emergence of contingencies. So
1: I guess philosophically, is contingency a physical manifestation of our lack of human value? Or is it the opposite?
0: Some people might say that it's the result of uh, downward pressure on wages as a result of increasing globalization and the ability to sort of surf the globe for competencies that you would pay a lot more for. And what that does is it just simply puts more pressure on the wage rate here and if that if that's happening, if companies are feeling you know, cost pressures and and they the only variable cost they can alter is labor so there's fixed costs and variable costs and fixed costs you're stuck they're machines you got to buy them you buy them once you got to use them and then there's variable costs that's labor and and labor is a very flexible element within our economic activities to a degree then there's what we call quasi-fix factor which is labor that has value that is particular to an organization, that should it disappear, that organization couldn't function as well. So labor gives you flexibility. It also does things, humans do things that that machines so far can't do. But as we move toward trying to make machines do what humans do, we are altering the understanding of our relationship between goods and services production and the actual human remuneration associated with that.
2: So maybe the problem we're circling around is not what type of labor we're doing or if a robot will take our job, but how we as a society value the labor humans are providing.
1: Exactly. And there are successful examples in the real world that have figured out how to balance the introduction of new technologies into their workforce while maintaining some stability for the individuals most vulnerable to the impacts of that technology.
0: And there's a lot of evidence for doing this and being successful. You can look at Norway, Sweden, Finland. These were countries that at the end of the Second World War, they were were in the state of becoming. They were not you know, global center points where the flows of knowledge and and product creation was really taking place. And they set forth policies that they carried out religiously over 30 years and have developed into remarkably civil and highly educated and more equitable societies. Another example is Korea. What was Korea in 1950? Mostly an agricultural country that had formerly been a colony of Japan where food was grown for the Japanese. And Korea also took a path very much like they did in the Nordic region and they invested enormous amounts in the construction of a highly socially valued education system with a policy of not leaving anyone behind.
2: It sounds like there's an occupational obligation for planners and lawmakers wrapped up in all this. We need to solve for equitable processes that keep the most vulnerable in mind. But how can we, in the US and other countries like ours, actually do this?
0: We are a professional society of individuals that are capable of assisting people evolve. That is what planning does, is it assists people to evolve. It also, represents a future which people need to be able to see to evolve. America's so big that we actually think of people as disposable. Everybody deserves a chance, but you've got to make it on your own. And when it means you've got to make it on your own, that is discounting any physical, locational, societal, or organizational constraint that makes it impossible for you to actually utilize your capabilities to their fullest. So I think that planning needs to think of itself in an active way, playing a role at this moment. How are we going to have a civil society that functions, that is happy and healthy into perpetuity? And that just has to be what you solve for. And, and that solution is not leaving people behind.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Planning Ideas That Matter podcast.
1: We would like to thank the Department of Urban Studies and Planning and our guest, Amy Glassmeyer, for joining us today.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening. Tune into our next episode where we'll be speaking with Jason Jackson and continue our conversation about robots and planning.